When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back. It is Jay Scott and it is the Hook Rocks. Thanks for coming by and listening once again. We do appreciate it. Don't forget to write us a five-star review when you're done listening to the episode. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a great network of music-related podcasts. So please check out all the great podcasters on that platform. It's all based around music, different types of topics, different types of bands that are covered, types of music that's covered. So there's something for everyone there. You can find them at Pantheon Pods on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find The Hook Rocks on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search up The Hook Rocks. Set your app for automatic downloads so you get all the new episodes right to your phone and you're able to listen to all the previous episodes that we've done. We've had some great episodes recently. We just welcomed Rob into Hood. We just did our live quarterly album review where we discuss the Cheap Trick Legacy album at Budokan. So check out that episode. We also welcomed in Kip Winger, George Lynch. We've had Richie Kotzen on earlier this year. We just had some new bands too as well. Great singer-songwriter from Nashville named Jax Hollow. Great band out of Seattle called Moon Fever. So please check that out. And we celebrated our four-year anniversary with Nita Strauss. And we're going to continue the celebration with our 500th episode. And we'd like to welcome in a previous guest earlier this year. I guess I've been wanting to talk to by himself because we've kind of got an inadvertent history together with Chicago music, gosh, 20 some years ago. And that is the drummer of the legendary band Cheap Trick and an incredible drummer. Uh, and that is Dax Nielsen. What's happening, man? How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on again. It's good to yes. be here. Yes, it was so good the first time we had to do it again, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't wait. I was <laughs> knocking your door down every day. I know. I know. I had to tell you 
Just relax. <laughs> we'll get to we'll it. We'll wait for the 500th. Yeah, right. Yes. So thanks again for doing this, man. We, we, um, I know we talked with your dad and we talked about rock and vodka previously. And that whole, um, um, episode was geared around that. But as I said, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because like I said, we've kind of got an inadvertent history. I mentioned Harmony Riley on the episode that we did in February and how I, was introduced to you guys. It was, I think it was a co-show with a band that I used to live with called 924, which was a Chicago area rock band that was probably defined the best way as 10 years too late and 10 years too early. They were right smack dab in an era where rock music, as you know, kind of was cookie cutter and didn't really have a lot of direction. And they reminded people of the bands of the Haiti, like the ACDCs and Van Halen's and stuff like that. And then they, now that all became retro 10 years after that album was released or 10, after 924 was in existence. So again, 10 years too late, 10 years too early. But you guys did a show with them at a place called Penny Road Pub in Barrington. Barrington. It was, yep. it was, it was a pseudo biker bar during the week. And then on the weekends, it was party time. It was a 4 a.m. bar. And I used to bounce there too as well. I was the uh, the head doorman, and I also used to work the downstairs area where all the women's bras and panties would hang from the ceiling, which was interesting. <laughs> but uh, I remember, and I got the CD, and I still have that CD, uh, Harmony Riley. And um, here we are, gosh, I don't know how many years later, 25 years later. Having you on I was going to say probably, probably 25, if, I'm, yeah. if our math isn't too far off. Jeez. Yeah. So that was the first time I, you know, familiar with you. And then you actually did an album with my roommates or an EP called Six Pack 924. Um, I, if anyone's trying to look it up and trying to buy it, I don't know anywhere where it is sold. Probably you might be able to find it on eBay somehow, somewhere, but I know it's probably not in existence. There was only a limited records made for both albums. And then after that, you kind of went in and kind of went and did your own thing. We're going to talk about that. So how it began, Harmony Riley to now, what was kind of the first step to you creating your own music in your own band? Well, it's funny that we're talking. I'm actually in Orlando, Florida today. Um, and I was in some bands when I was really young, like 12 and 14. And then kind of high school got in the way, just kind of got into I fell away from music just for a couple of years. And then when I was uh, 15 or 16, uh, my brother, Miles, was going to college down here at a recording engineering school called Full Sail. And one summer vacation, I came down to visit him. Somehow my parents thought it was a good idea that I came and spent two weeks with my my 20-year-old, 21-year-old brother, and I'm 15. And uh, needless to say, I got my first really good taste of alcohol and uh, Swisher Sweet cigars and whatnot. Oh, but uh <laughs> while I was down, um, my brother and his roommates had musical equipment. And one night we just started to jam and I hadn't played. I mean, besides, you know, con I was in like concert band in high school. I played the pep rallies and whatnot, but it had been a few years since I'd played in a real band. And we just started jamming. And next thing you know, we were playing to like four in the morning. And uh, my brother's like, wow, you've gotten really good. You know, I, <laughs> since I, you know, since you were 13 or 14. And uh, we just kind of kept jamming for those couple weeks. And then when he graduated college, he moved back to Illinois. And we decided to start a band. And so it was the two of us and a couple of our friends. And uh, we were first called Nina Foundry, which if you guys have ever seen, if anybody lives around the Midwest, every manhole cover is made at the Nina Foundry. And so we started to gain some fan base and all of a sudden we got a cease and desist, uh, cease and desist letter from Nina Foundry saying, uh, you can't be called our company's name. So anyways, that band became Harmony Riley. And we did from like 2000 or no, I'm sorry, 1997 to 2004. So we did about seven years of pretty heavy touring, did two or three albums, a couple EPs, opened up for Cheap Trick a bunch, which led to me filling in for cheap trick in 2001 that whole summer and uh yeah that was that was really my first taste of uh original like real music and touring and trying to actually make you know quote unquote make it 
in the music industry. Now, Harmony Riley, if I know correct correctly, because I'm from Chicago land too, is that's a street. If you're heading down 90, you go over the underpass of is it Harmony Riley Road or is it some kind of similarity? Yeah, to you're it? right. Yeah, we're we're not very creative. We we just copied other people's stuff. Nina Foundry. Okay, what else do we see in a lot? Okay, we drove past Harmony Riley Road every time we drove into Chicago to play, or to the Penny Road Pub for that matter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it just it was something that my brother Miles wrote a song. He thought the name was cool. He, he wrote a song called you know like a day in the life of Harmony Riley or something like that. Some guy and he had this whole story about this guy whose name was Harmony Riley. Anyways, we needed a name, and that song kind of just stuck with us. So, yep, that was where we got the name. Song on the street sign every time we drove to Chicago. And then, you know, there was the, you know, like I said, with my old roommates and the six-pack EP, 924 six-pack EP, which you played the drums on. And did I don't, did you do shows with them, too? Yeah, yeah, I did a handful of shows. Um I'd have to really think pretty hard. And it's like we said, 25 years ago, but I, I think I did two or three, maybe more shows on my own. And then I think we did a couple shows where another drummer from Rockford, uh, we did kind of double, like the Allen brothers, grateful dead, double drumming thing. That was, which was really fun. But if you know the band, it was a total, uh, debacle, you know, just <laughs> party. The stage was just full of people and, Red well, Solo cups flying everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I funny story about them. I, I used to live with them, and I was the only one that had a job that if I took off, I would still get paid. Right? Ooh. So, so I think one guy was worked at an ice cream parlor. Two other guys were rollerblade instructors. So if they took off, they didn't get paid. So we had a keg fridge in the kitchen, and we had to get the line clean because we're getting floaters in the beer. So they're like, you got to stay home because you'll get paid. If you stay home, take a sick day. We're going to have someone come out and clean the lines of the, of the beer fridge in the kitchen. I'm like, well, this is important. So I guess, yeah, I'll use a sick day. So this (laughs) big beer truck pulls up in front of the house and rings the doorbell. And I answer the door and he's like, am I, am I in the right place? I got this address here to clean out some, some uh, keg lines. I'm like, oh yeah, it's right in the kitchen. He's like, I've never done this in a house before. <laughs> he said, how many, how much beer are you guys drinking? I'm like, well, we pretty much go through a keg a week, week and a half. And, um, but yeah, no, those are some really good times. And I remember, um, Mike Graham, who's, you know, a photographer up in Rockford and done a lot of stuff with Cheap Trick was at the photo shoot of this, you know, this band 924. And, um, we had girls that worked at a strip club on the first album that we're going to take photos with. And they were out on our patio, like half naked, topless, whatever. And we, our backyard backs up to a busy street. And there actually was an accident because somebody wasn't paying attention and rear-ended someone at the light. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so that, that was a, that was a good time with those guys. And I, I imagine, you know, you uh, getting your feet wet at that time, you know, had to be an, been an experience too. I mean, th- those guys could could party big time. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Like like you said about their band, I was for for that scene. I was ten years too early. <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> fifteen or sixteen, whatever it was, and looking around. Oh my god! You know, I I grew up in the rock and roll world, but never had strippers on the front on the back porch and a keg in the in the in the, a keg in the kitchen. Yeah, no, it was it was um it was an education for the few years that I lived with them. Then if 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 I remember correctly, you resurfaced with Dick Dale. Yeah. Um for those who don't know, he's the king of the surf guitar. He yeah. was super famous in the early sixties, um, you know, Beach Boys and all that, and then all the, the California surf scene, and then the Beatles came out. And I always say Dick Dale was poison. And the Beatles were Nirvana. Like, Dick Day was huge. And then along come the Beatles, and suddenly they were irrelevant. You know, you know Poison was the biggest band in the world or whatever. And here comes Nirvana. No, nobody cared about Poison or that, you know, that, that style of music anymore. It's a great analogy, actually. It really is. Because he was, I mean, surf music 
was huge when before the Beatles were we came over. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely everything at the time. And so Harmony Riley, we decided we'd run our course. You know, we thought we were getting somewhere big, and then just kind of plateaued. And then you know, just seven years of that, you're like, okay, you know, when you're that young, and I'm, you know, I I was 24 at the time. You feel like, oh my god, my time's running out. You know, I got I got to make a move. And a couple of the guys went and got real jobs. And my brother is still singing and uh, writing songs with his band, Miles Nielsen and the Rusted Hearts. But uh, I, I decided I wasn't done. So I moved out to L.A., you know, got took the plunge and uh, packed everything up. <clears throat> my mom made me wait till after my birthday, so <laughs> which is in August. So I, I left in September 2004 and never looked back, really. Um, it took me a good six, seven months to really get my feet on the ground. but. My first big gig was was Dick Dale, and um, he had a huge resurgence in the '90s into the 2000s because uh, his song "Miserlou" was the the first song in Pulp Fiction that everybody remembers. And uh, you know, the Black Eyed Peas ended up sampling that while I was playing with Dick still, and so like you know, his music kind of became relevant again, kind of like a lot of the, the legacy artists now are selling out arenas again because there's not a ton of real deal rock and roll anymore if you will yeah, yeah. so you know like he was selling out clubs you know he, he didn't he didn't get huge again but he was playing we were doing a good 60 shows a year something like that you know and he was 69 at the time 70 71 <clears throat> so you know to see him out working that much was was really uh inspirational for me to to keep going and now i'm playing in a band with a bunch of 70 year olds <laughs> so you know it's kind of been my i love rock and roll and i love real deal old school you know the rock and roll that was influenced by swing bands and by you know the beatles and whatnot so i just kind of choose to i've been lucky to play for guys that grew up in the era that this music was actually from you know when you look back on that time you know harmony riley into some local chicago music that we talked about into the dick dale and moving out to california you're trying to find your way, right? I mean, your dad is who he is and, and you're trying to carve your own path. What was that like for you? What was that experience? How did it make you a better musician and how did it change your perspective on things? Uh, well, I mean, as anybody knows, there's a million great musicians out in LA and everybody moves to LA now in Nashville too. But, you know, back, back in the day, Nashville was just mostly country. Um, but, you know, I, I was a Nielsen in Rockford, Illinois for 24 years. Every You know, I couldn't go out to dinner or the grocery store without knowing everybody there, which is a great, beautiful thing. But, you know, you move out to L.A. and nobody cares. You know, one of the first months I was out there, I was at a bar and I'm hanging out with Rod Stewart's daughter and George Harrison's son, Danny. And I'm like, my dad's just Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. Like these guys, their parents are like super famous, you know. So that was that was really cool because then you really had to step up your game if you wanted to hang in these circles, you know, with legendary musicians, which you know, Cheap Trick is, but not George Harrison's kid, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then you go. I had to go on a bunch of what's you know, cattle calls. You know, like you wait in line, kind of like a like a audition for actors. You know, you wait and you learn the song and you come in and you sit down in front of total strangers and you play one song and they decide if you're hired or not kind of thing. And so that really, you know, going from my own band where we wrote and practiced our songs for years to like having to be a professional and be, you know, great the first time and know the song back and forward and look the part and all the other stuff that never used to matter. That was a real, you know, real eye opener. So, I mean, I always grew up playing along with my favorite bands, you know, put the headphones on and play along with, whatever but to learn some you know i went on a bunch of stuff it was like a 15 year old disney girl that you know was about to go on her first tour but you know we had to support people like that and it was just you know it's nerve-wracking you gotta show up and look cool and play great and they want to like your personality it's pretty it's, it was tough and it wasn't for me luckily i found some I, yeah i got the dick dale gig which led into other band situations but uh yeah i mean if you're going to be out there, you have to be prepared. You have to be well-rounded. You have to know what you want to do. You know, so that was a, that was a, like I said, a real eye opener. And, uh, 
I think I grew a lot in this first the first year or so of moving out there. What did you learn the most about yourself when you moved out there? Oh, you know, that people liked me, you know, for me, they didn't know who my dad was or what my history was or who my older brothers were. You know what I mean? Just I made my own way out there and, you know, I slept on a futon for four years with, in a house with four other dudes, you know, like getting $5 hot and ready's from Little Caesars because that, that's all I could afford or, you know, go down and get a burrito from the, the, the little shack in the parking lot and eat that for two meals for five bucks, you know, you know, I, I didn't come from a bunch of money. And I didn't, you know, and my dad was never the type to just give us money, you know, or if we needed it, of course, but like there was no allowance or any kind of monthly stipend or anything. It was nothing like that. So, you know, I moved out there, took the big plunge and realized that, you know, I have to work. And I actually got a job for the first six months at a, uh, a music store. Cause that's, you know, at least you're around music. I worked in the drum department and tuning drums for people or cleaning up their hardware. And uh, it just drove you to really realize you got to work hard and be prepared. Do you really want to do this? And I, I did luckily, you know, I did really want, it wasn't like I was going to move back to Illinois and go work at the bank again. So you you learn about yourself and just hard work and dedication to your craft is what is necessary to, to have longevity in this, in this uh career where in california did you live back then los angeles los angeles yeah i lived for the first five years right kind of by the hollywood sign okay in an area called beachwood and then everybody eventually moved to silver lake which is where all the musicians and the, you know it was, it was a crummy area when i first moved there and then it became gentrified if you will and a bunch of coffee shops and music stores and, you know everybody just sit around and there's a bunch of small studios in the area because it was cheap to live there. So, you know, producers could buy a house and turn it into a studio for relatively cheap. And, Were uh, things starting yeah. to change back then, too? I mean, we talked about Nashville now being kind of where all the musicians go. You know, L.A. back then, late 90s, early 2000s was still still a place, still a hotbed for musicians. But was there a change happening then or did that not come yet? Uh, it was starting, I would say. I mean, the the like the rock and roll scene was still there with like the Key Club and the Roxy and all the the Viper Room. You know, Sunset Boulevard was, was still had a bunch of rock clubs, which I've been told a lot of that stuff is torn down now. I believe the Rainbow is still there, but you know they're doing like the same thing they do everywhere. They're knocking all these legendary places down and building apartment complexes for you know grocery stores instead, but. Yeah, I mean, no, there was still a big studio scene. This is about the time like home recording started, but it hadn't really become a thing yet. Pro Tools was $10,000 back then, you know, so only actual producers would buy it. But now it, you know, it comes with your iMac, you know, basically. Um, So no, there was still a bunch of, you know, you'd go actually into a studio with a big board and a producer. If you, you know, if you were lucky enough to get hired, I got hired to do a handful of albums and, you know, just like two or three songs on the album. And then, you know, I'm sharing out, sharing the album with legendary drummers like Matt Chamberlain or Jimmy Paxton and all these other guys where, you know, I was lucky to at least be on the album. I didn't get the whole thing, but sharing it with some of my studio idols was pretty amazing. You know, you're trying to find your way out there and you're trying to carve, you know, search for your own path. And, you know, you're doing it, you know, without any help you know, from, from your dad, you know, who, who most, I think people make the assumption that because of who your dad is, you're getting help. Right. I mean, that's kind of the, the assumption right. you should never assume anything because there are different stories for, for different people. And, and, you know, when you were doing that and you're trying to find your way, were, I mean, was it for you just taking any gig? Were you selective or, or maybe better yet, in the in the world of rock and roll at that time, did you feel like you didn't know what direction to go to, or did you always have an idea where you wanted to end up? No, I mean, honestly, besides Dick Dale, which was surf rock, it wasn't even really straight rock and roll. Um, besides him, most of my gigs were female singer-songwriters. Um, and, you know, like I said, up-and-coming 
a girl that got signed to a, a record label needed a band. So you'd audition for these things and pretty much take whatever you can, which, I mean, I learned how to play the brushes out there. You know, I was a rock drummer, but everything called for like a, a toned down, you know, quieter drummer than, you know, no bashing away back there. You know, we need her, we need her to be the star. We need her to play, you know, I want people to hear her piano or, you know what I mean? So quickly I had to, I mean, I'd always kind of worked on that kind of stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't my forte, but quickly you realize if you're going to get these gigs, okay, I realize I need to buy some brushes. I need to buy some hot rods, which are like thinner drumsticks. It's like a bunch of small sticks tied together and just, you've seen them before, I'm sure. But, you know, you had to, you had to really learn how to mute your bass drum and, and put your wallet on the snare to mute it or, you know, or duct tape the crap out of it. So it's not, you know, too loud. It just stuff that that was the you know the singer songwriter generation out there at least you know which is still kind of going with you know bands like Coldplay which now now are way louder. They started out their acoustic band you know and uh, the Lumineers or uh, what are those guys called Mumford and Sons. That, that was kind of like all that stuff was starting to happen. Where like the loud distortion guitar was going away. And, the muted drums were happening and you just kind of had to like, you have to be a chameleon if you're going to keep going, unless you have something that is your one thing you do and stick with, you know, ACDC never had a ballad, luckily, <laughs> but as a working musician, you kind of have to either you say I'm a rock drummer and that's it. Or you say, I need to learn how to play every style of music just in case I get called for it. You know? Yeah. I remember that period of music. I, I really enjoyed, you know, the era of like the, Pete Yorn and the Ryan Adams and, you know, senior songwriters and gosh, who else was like, um, uh, Liz fair and, and artists like that. I thought that was an interesting era of music because it, you know, it came out of the, it was spawned out of the grunge era. And it, it felt like at that time, no one really wanted to take ownership of like what rock and roll was going to be after that. And then mm -hmm. I think that's what helped the rise of the singer songwriter because they made music relatable to people and with what they were singing about. And, you know, and I think that's kind of where that, that, that took place or where that spawned. Absolutely. I think so. I mean, everything has to evolve and change, you know, yeah. rock and roll hair metal was never going to be the thing for 50 years straight. <laughs> Eventually that even, you know, uh, r&b or blues that was the biggest thing before rock and roll and then rock and roll happened and then you know everything has to evolve you know, you know music these days is nothing like the music from the 70s or 80s so kind of have to go with it unless you're gonna be one of those old guys that goes oh back in my day <laughs> music was so much better which it was but i would never say yeah that. It, it it was <laughs> but i i also think too that there's more of a muffled attempt with rock and roll now i think you have a lot of great bands that are coming out they don't get heard because rock radio doesn't exist mm -hmm. and there's really no outlet for it anymore i mean mtv was the big giant outlet for rock music for a long time that doesn't exist you really have to go find it and search it and i just think that you know the music is not given a chance to kind of be on an equal playing field and who knows if it is or people have different opinions as to what is, I, I tend to think that a lot of the music today is it's just as good, but it's just not heard. It's just not relevant. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of great, there, there's a, a band called uh, the band feel. They're out of St. Louis. They opened up for us recently. There were a bunch of young guys and they were playing real deal rock and roll. I like, we all like left the dressing room and we're like, what, what's going on out there? And you know, they all had vintage amps and the drummer played like John Bonham and the guitar player, soloed great you know the singer was wailing away i was like oh my god <laughs> they're like 25 or something I don't, I don't know but and they were playing it properly so it's it is out there there's still young people that want to play like that but like you said you know there's no there's no money behind it there's no labels that are pushing rock and roll there's a couple bands i mean besides the food fighters but they're they've been around for 30 years <laughs> you know you see, there's some young bands, but I mean, even like the the most rock and roll bands I think of these days are like Foo Fighters or Kings of Leon, and they they're both been around for twenty plus years. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's like they're not they're not young bands by any means. They're old guys yeah. playing rock and roll. <laughs> no, there's a definite vacuum 
after a certain period of time. And I've often asked the question, you know, once all these legacy artists are done touring, where is the rock and roll crowd going to go? You know, that's a, you know, because there's just really no new band that can fill, you know, a, a huge stadium, you know, like Soldier Field or something like no. that. No, I mean, that's why you see, you know, The Who is still out there. Paul McCartney is still out there. Rolling Stones are all still out there touring because people want to go pay to see them. And people know that there's that is going to be gone in probably the next five, 10 years, unfortunately. And just realistically, they're going to be out in their 90s. You know, Mick Jagger just, will still be Mick Jagger will still be on stage at ninety. It'll and be running. And around. if life hasn't killed Keith Richards now, my money on him will still be around. <laughs> oh God, who would have thought? I know, man. Him and Ozzy. It's like, yeah, you know, them I being mean, around in two thousand twenty-three was not on my bingo card twenty years ago. <laughs> I know it's wild. After Dick Dale, you ended up in Brandy. Carlisle's band. Uh, no, not quite. That, did that happen? Uh, during Dick Dale, I met this girl named Allison Sudol, um, who would call herself a fine frenzy. And she's a great singer songwriter. And we actually kind of started a band together. I mean, it was her thing for sure, but um, it was the same core guys. It was me and a keyboard player called Stephen LeBlanc. And I, on my time off from Dick Dale, I was working with her demoing she wrote all the music but we did all the you know we demo all the stuff and then we did all the showcases for record labels you know most of them in her garage that was a studio her parents like moved the cars outside and you know made her a, a music room and here comes the, the president of virgin you know virgin records or whatever sitting on the couch watching us play and she ended up getting signed and doing really well um i think she put out i was on the first album Maybe the second too, but anyway, she put out a handful of albums. But eventually, she kind of became an actress. She's been in like the last those three new Harry Potter spinoffs, oh, uh, Fantastic okay. Beasts, I think they're called. Anyway, so she's an actress now. I think she's a mom now, even. Um, but I was with her for a couple of years, and we ended up opening for Brandy Carlisle, who was very small at the time. You know, we were playing five hundred theaters, something like that. I tell people, oh, I play. You know, so anyways, Brandy. Open up for Brandy. At the end of the tour, Brandy said, you know, if you're ever available, I'd love for you to be my drummer, which is kind of, you know, in like, moral of the story is, you know, get out there and play or, and with everybody you can in front of as many people as you can. And hopefully somebody sees you. So anyways, I moved on to Brandy after that for a couple of years. And everybody goes, oh, you play for the girl from the, the, the Go-Go's. Like, no, that's Belinda Carlisle. This is this new girl, Brandy. And now she's won like nine Grammys. She sells, you know, She's massive now. But when I played for her, it was just her second album. And like I said, we were, she was small. And, um, yeah. So my first, like, besides detail, like I said, my, my first five, six, seven years of music outside of Rockford was female stuff. So I was, you know, I, rock and roll wasn't really my, my jam for a while. I still loved it, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't, you kind of had to go with where the wind blew you. You leave Rockford, you're in California, you're doing a different style than you were accustomed to. How present day in terms of your drumming, how did that affect? Or can you hear the evolution in your drumming from the beginning days through Brandy Carlisle and what was next after that, you know, Dick Dale? I mean, there's a lot of different dynamic going on with your playing with a lot of different artists. And I have to you know, that that's almost like pushing your evolution into like a an area where probably you didn't expect to go. Absolutely. I mean, Harmony Riley was kind of a jam band in the vein of Dave Matthews slash Government Mule slash the Black Crows. And then you go play for Dick Dale, who's surf rock. And then you go play for Fine Frenzy, who's piano based brushes and whatnot, like I said. And then Brandy's more country meets singer songwriter meets Appalachia kind of thing, you know? And then I had a couple things in between a couple bands I played for that weren't very big, but you know, you play with those people. And then I got the, the one day I got a phone call for cheap trick. And then that's its own style of music. You know, nobody plays, nobody really sounds like cheap trick in a way they have their own swing and their own, it was though you know they created something that, yeah it's rock and roll but it, you could tell it's them and especially live you know it, there was a certain way to play for me you know i had to 
fill some huge shoes, if you will, you know, not fill, but trying a pair similar to it, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I, I think every, every band you ever play with and every studio session you do and every album you listen to that you like, you kind of, you hopefully pick up things all along the way and make it your own. Do you know, who, have you ever heard of Vinny Cayuda? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're world famous drummer played yeah. for everybody, but his main, can you do the last fame was Perry a, album too? Uh, he could have. Yeah, I'm not sure, but he was he was Sting's drummer for uh, many years. You know, ten summoners that hit through all those fields of gold, all those big hits. That, anyways, I heard an interview with him one day. And he said, you know, when he was young, he tried to copy this guy and that guy and that guy, and then one day he realized, wait, this is me. Like he took all those ingredients and became him, and that you know, and now people copy him. So I know I think. Like I said, if you're doing the right thing, you're learning with everything you do. And, you know, besides ACDC, thankfully, God bless them. But besides ACDC, every band has changed over the years. You know, you have to, you know, you have you too changed a ton, you know, Cheap Trick, you know, whatever you name it. Aerosmith, they started out super rock and roll. And then they had, you know, in the 90s, 2000s, these big power ballads, you know, love it or leave it, like it or don't, whatever you want to say, like bands change you kind of have to people change you know you're not the same person when you're 50 as when you were 20 so if you don't evolve and change you're kind of stuck i would think yeah i think that's one of the things that audiences and fans have a difficult time with because i I think they want to keep an artist or a band that they love in in a box right they want it they want them to stay in that box because that's what they know that's what they love. But like you said, I mean, ACDC is, is only one that can repeatedly make the same album and people will love it because it's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, artists really do need that change. I mean, you, know, you talk about Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, look at from Led Zeppelin one all the way through in through the outdoor, a complete change yeah. in dynamic. Completely different band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you got the call for Cheap Trick, was there some any hesitancy of you pursuing that because of, your dad being in the band and, and you wanting to carve your own path. No, not, not that at all. Um, I was hesitant because I didn't realize at all that it was going to be a 13 year job for me. <laughs> Plus, you know, it's over 13 years. Um, it was, I was working with this guy, Corey Chisel, um, at the time. And I was, was, this is after Brandy and I was playing with this guy, Corey Chisel. And my brother was playing bass in the band at the time. And we were getting ready to go to Europe for like three weeks. I, you know, I loved this guy's music. I totally believed in him. He got signed to a label and, you know, made albums and whatnot. So he was from Wisconsin. So he's like kind of a, a, an older friend that I'd known for years that was, he was young, younger than me by probably four or five years, which when you're young, that's a big difference. You know, he was a fan of Harmony Riley. So he would come see us play that young, young guy that would come see us. And then he, then he became this artist on his own. So anyways, I really believed in him and he had some major label backing and we were getting, like I said, we were getting ready to go to tour Europe for three weeks. And I got the call for Cheap Trick and had 48 hours to decide, not even to decide. I had to be there in 48 hours if I said yes. So I had to, I made a few phone calls to musician friends and like, should I do this? You know, I believe in Corey and, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be the drummer for Cheap Trick. I'm just going to fill in till things, you know, whatever till things change or whatever and uh so no i didn't think i was becoming the drummer in cheap trick i thought it was i was i was hesitant because i don't want to leave this thing that i had going to go for a week or two to you know to fill in you know so i never thought it was gonna be 13 plus years is, is the gist of the story and uh yeah so there was some it was, but it was never because my dad's in the band or anything like that i i got the chance to play for cheap trick you know, in 2001 for a couple months while, while Bunny had back surgery. And then, then that was done till 2010, you know, nine years later, I just, it was never in my radar that I was going to do it again. You know, I thought it was a one-time thing, just helping out. And here we are. When did so, you, you know, settle no in? You know, like when did you realize that, <laughs> all right, this is kind of my. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Gig now. I don't know. I don't know that I really have still. Um, You know, they were around for so long and, they, you know, I'm here 13 years. Next year will be their 50th anniversary. So I'm in the band 25% of it, which sounds like a lot, but in the, you know, all the the young days and, and all the forming the band and all that stuff, that's, that's way harder than maintaining things. You know, I, I've, I've built my own bands before and, you know, you watch these behind the musics with any band and it's like the, the interesting stuff is the early years. And then, you know, now they're now Aerosmith's flying around in solid gold, jets and you know it's like okay no i could turn i can change the channel now but you know so i mean i i I, in a humble kind of way i guess i would say when i was on my first album with them that's when it's like oh okay you know i'm i'm the drummer on this album in this band so i guess technically i'm the drummer in the band but you know it's it's their band and i'm i'm happy to be helping out to your point about the early days versus the the newer days um, the music still, the cheap trick is still phenomenal. And I often say that the album were all, all right, which was the one previous to the last one you made is one of their best albums that they've ever done. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think it was real proud of that one. It was, that was a fantastic album. Like I didn't really know what to expect. Cause I didn't really hear anything off of it prior to me listening to it. And I remember driving around in my car and I'm like, this is a really good fucking album. Like this is awesome. <laughs> you know, like, and I just yeah. was playing it for weeks on end. And, and I talked to our, our mutual friend in California, Phil. And, and uh, I said, have you heard the new cheap trick? He's like, yeah, it's really good. I'm like, dude, it's phenomenal. This is a great record. <laughs> and um, I, I always, you know, when, when someone points to cheap trick and says, Oh, they haven't done anything since heaven tonight or whatever. I always say, well, have you heard we're all all right? Because that's a kick-ass album. You know, <laughs> got to listen to it. Don't make that assumption until you listen to that album. And yeah, I, I will go to bat for that record forever. Thank you. Yeah, we're real, real proud of that one. You know, when you think of where your career has taken you now in Cheap Trick, what other experiences did you have and things that you look back on? Maybe it was a show or a one-off gig where you got the opportunity to play with 
someone you admired or a band that you admired, you know, prior to getting in the Cheap Trick gig, or maybe there was something off to the side with with Cheap Trick. Um, there's a band called the Fab Foe, which is um, comprised of Jimmy Vivino, who was uh, Conan O'Brien's guitar player slash band leader for a lot of years. Uh, Will Lee, who was Dave Letterman's bass player for the entire 35 years of the show. And a few other guys that um, uh, are great musicians as well. And they do like a Beatles, I wouldn't call it a tribute. It, I mean, they, they they try to get the gear right. They try to get it all right, you know, make it sound right. They don't dress as them or anything like that. But I got to play with them a few nights uh, to fill in. Their drummer had a heart attack. And uh, his doctor said he could sing still, but he could, they didn't want him playing drums for a while. So those guys called me and trusted me to play with them. And I mean... Will Lee's been on over a thousand albums as a bass player, you know, guys and played with Dave Letterman's band for 35 years. Like this guy's a legend. And for somebody like that to call and say, Hey, can you, can you be the drummer for us? You know, it's 37 songs a night, all Beatles. Like that was pressure, but that's for, you know, I'll never forget that, that, the, you know, those gigs, just stuff like that, you know, where you've established yourself enough and people see you out there. And I've had a few phone calls, throughout the years uh, from pretty big artists that needed a drummer that I, w I didn't take because, you know, I'm with Cheap Trick and these were a month and a half tours, you know, summertime tours that they needed a drummer for. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't going to leave these guys to, you know, for a, a one-off, if you will, a, quick, a cheap date. But to get those phone calls that, you know, hopefully someday when, when this is done, I'll get some good phone calls like that too. You think of Cheap Trick, they have a rigorous tour schedule, you know, for years. They're always on the road. They're always playing. And, you know, they, you've had the opportunity to play with some bands, too, as well. Like Foreigner, you you guys did some shows with. Um, was there, I think there were gigs with, obviously, the Rod Stewart tour that just recently happened. Was there a Def Leppard tour in there, too, as well? Def Leppard, Joan yeah. Jett, Aerosmith. We did Poison, um, Paul, uh, blah, 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 blah. Peter Frampton, uh, geez, Foreigner. That was, that was, I had made good friends with those guys. <laughs> they like to party. Um, uh, yeah, you, I mean, we played with pretty much everybody. You know, we, we did a summer with Pat Benatar. We did a summer with Hart and, uh, you know, they, I mean, they've been doing it for 50 years, but since I've been there, that's just a tip of the iceberg of who we played with. You know, we we kind of, we do a lot of summer the summertime package tours are really, I know the fans kind of sometimes don't love it because each band only plays 70 minutes instead of full set. But, you know, if we, pay, if we team up with foreigner, we can sell, we can sell out, you know, 20,000 seats. Whereas on our own, we, we can't, you know, so those summertime tours are great to do. And then we do, I mean, about a hundred shows a year. So it's just a brief part of the year where we do that stuff. But yeah, I mean, to be able to share stages with, with bands like those and get to know those kind of caliber musicians and celebrity, it's celebrity, if you will. And I'm hanging out with them, you know, having a drink or they know my name. I walk in the door, you know, it's just, that's, that's really the, the cool part to, I mean, I guess kind of be considered a peer by these people that I look up to. Well, that had to be, you know, like, like you just said, you, know, you look up to these people I don't, I don't think there's any other for a musician, um, or any type of artist, your peer acceptance is so important, you know, because these are the yeah. people that live the, this life every, every day. And, you know, they know who's, who's worth it and who's, who's not, you know, and, and, you know, to get that acceptance, that had to be feel pretty good considering the path that you, that you took, you know, moving out to California, you know, having burritos for lunch and dinner and, and all that stuff. I mean, that has, that has to be very rewarding for you, for you as an artist. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to think like, like you said, we've known each other 25 years still doing it. And it's how I pay my mortgage and it's how I pay, you know, for my children and my wife to survive. <laughs> and I played drums and I, I, if you, if you don't feel lucky then then you're something's wrong with you, you know, was there ever amazing? A, yeah. W was there ever a period where you were thinking of another path in life outside of music. Absolutely. I mean, 
I still don't feel like I've made it necessarily. You know, I've, I've done some cool things and I've had a career, but it's a, it's a, it's a yearly thing of, okay, I'm, I'm 35 now. Okay. I'm 40 now. Okay. I'm 43 now. Like how much longer can I be lucky and do this job? Or should I start thinking of other, you know, like I said, I have kids, and a wife, and a mortgage, <laughs> you know, I'm happy. I'm, 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 I don't, I hate to use the word blessed, but I'm blessed that I've been able to, to support my life and then my wife's life. And now my two children's life to just by doing the thing that I was, I guess, given a talent and I've somehow parlayed that into a, a three decade career almost. You talked about that jam session with your brother when you went down to, to, uh, Florida uh-huh. at a young age and you had kind of stepped away from the drums. How did that make you a better musician by stepping away at, at an early age like that and finding that passion again? I think it was essential. I don't think I, if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have ever played music professionally again. I just, I wanted to be a dentist or a doctor. <laughs> you know, I had, I went to college and wasn't studied pre-med. You know, I didn't got my gen eds out of the way to do pre-med. And then I dropped out to be a musician, which my parents hated, but <laughs> they couldn't quite say no because they, you know, they saw that I loved it and I had a talent, but yeah, I thought I was going to be a doctor or a dentist or something, you know, for me at that time, that sounded like something I could, cause I was, I did well in school so I, I can get a degree and actually do this guaranteed and then have, money you know like i could be a doctor or a dentist and have a nice house and you know just the stupid things when you're young like what matters which i mean money still matters <laughs> but sure you know it was like what what can i do that you know like i, would, I was never going to be a salesman i was never going to be in business that kind of stuff necessarily you know i'm not going to sell a product for somebody but you know, if you get a degree like that sounded like something I could do, just, you know, get the school out of the way, which, which takes a long time. But then once you're done, then you have a career, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, throughout the years when, you know, when I stopped working with Brandy, I decided, okay, I'm going to leave LA. So I moved to Nashville, gave myself a fresh start. Like, you know, I, it seemed like maybe the end then if I don't move to Nashville and like try a different place, a different scene out, then maybe I'm going to run out of gigs. You know, and then Cheap Trick came along like a month later, which is fine, which is great. But, you know, it actually worked out great. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, at that point, like I said, I thought, and when my LA days were kind of wrapping up, you know, I'm 24 years, whatever I was, 29 years old. I'm washed up, man. I've got to try, I got to go to Nashville and see what that scene's all about, or I'm done. So, what was that like for you? I mean, you know, obviously there maybe wasn't a, um, you know, a specific amount of time for you to get a, a real feel for it, but, um, you know, it's a great community of musicians in there. And they, I think that's the biggest difference between LA and Nashville from what I've learned to understand from people I've interviewed was is LA is probably a lot more cutthroat where Nashville is a lot more of a community. Yeah, at least it was. I'm not sure. I think it still is. Like a lot of, I have a lot of drummer friends there and, uh, you know, other musician friends, but all my drummer friends, they all hang out together like every day. Like they, after their sessions, they all get together and have drinks or go to dinner. And like, if one guy can't do it, they, they're, hey, my buddy is going to step in today. You know, they're all that good. And they're not stepping on each other's toes to get the next buck. You know, it's like, hey, I can't do this. They do a lot of sub, subbing there. Like, Hey, I got, you know, I got this one gig this weekend. Can my buddy Jay is going to step in on drums, you know, whatever. So that, that was what I loved about it. And when I moved there in 2009, it was cheap still. It was cheap, cheap, cheap. And if I had any money at the time, I would have, and I could have bought a house, you know, you know, like they say, it'd be worth four times what I paid for it now, you know. I mean, I remember moving there. Coors Light was two to like two two dollars and twenty five cents for a, a beer. Now it's probably six seven bucks there. You know, yeah, like you could live was, on the cheap. It was yeah. way cheaper than L.A. And now it's not. No, it's not. I, I've been out there twice, actually three times in the past year, and I was having a conversation with an Uber driver and how they're trying to. I think it was they're trying to get the Super Bowl there. So they're building up all these hotels 
And right. traffic is traffic is terrible because all these people have moved there and the infrastructure yet hasn't caught up to the population oh, yeah. surge. So that's why there's just as much traffic in in uh in Nashville as there is in LA. When I would well, nothing's like LA traffic, but it's <laughs> it's, it's definitely it's definitely getting there and, and it's just it's interesting to see how that has happened. And um yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely loaded with just people. It's like oozing yeah, with people. I mean, they're just knocking every old place down and building like I said, building apartments and they have these things called skinny houses there. So they'll buy one property and like halfway down they they build these tall skinny houses. You can, you can fit two houses on one plot of land, you know. They're like just it's too quick, too you know, it's too too fast, too soon for that city. It's just it's growing so fast. Yeah. And has been for ten years now. So but I mean, there's space out there. My buddy lives down in Franklin, which is 40 minutes from downtown, you know, and they just built like 700 houses in his, in his neighborhood. It's just ridiculous. That's crazy. And, and that's, that's insane. Yeah. But you no, know, it is very expensive in Nashville. It's not, it's not quite LA, but it's getting there. It's, it's, um, it's pretty close. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, looking at a different path, getting back to what you said about going to med or dental school, you know, what was, what was the thing that you wanted, why, why you wanted to keep at rock and roll and rock music and be a rock and be a drummer? I mean, it's just, it's in my genes. It really is. It's, it's, um, it's just what I've always loved to do. And I, you know, every time I think I'm getting out, then they pull me back in, you know, I just, I get a nice little break from somebody and, uh, um, I said, this is what I've always loved to do. And not, you know, now that I'm getting older and older, it's like, now I'm like, what else would I do? This is what I, I'm, I'm kidding myself to think that this is like something that's just like a flash in the pan. Um, I just think, think, um, going out and doing like a different job, like, you know, when I was young, like when you're young, people say, you know, you have to go to college and get a career. You have to know what you want to do by the time you're 17. And I'm technically, I did know what I wanted to do. And that's what I've been doing since I was, in my teenage years but i think you get scared you know some people do you get scared if like i need to figure out what my career for life is when you know now that we're both older <laughs> you realize yeah the first 10 years out of high school is kind of like you're just you're flailing you're kind of figuring out what you're going to do and it doesn't really matter i mean some people know what they're doing when they're 25 but most of us didn't so, yeah yeah you know the the definition of success varies for a lot of different people. And I've always thought that the wrong approach is to think the only way you're successful is if you reach the top of the mountain. Right. You know, because right. I think you, you just put unrealistic expectations on yourself because only a certain few get to be at the top of the mountain. Yeah. But you've said a lot of interesting things in this interview and namely is, you know, you can support your family, your wife, your two kids doing what you do. And more importantly, you're, you're, you're living your life doing what you love. And I yeah. think that really is the, the definition of success. You know, being able to, to, to find a passion, love it, live it, become great at it and support yourself and your family doing so. I mean, that's, that's huge. It's incredible. I, absolutely. I mean, I, there's only a couple, there's only one or two Rolling Stones or Beatles or whatever. Taylor Swift's in the world that or you too, you know, look at a band like cheap trick. They were never the biggest. They're never the smallest, they, but they've had a 50 year career. And I think that's success right there. I mean, would you love to sell a hundred million albums instead of 20? Sure. <laughs> I'll take it. But selling 20 million albums like they have is that's quite impressive. And you know, it's afforded them a 50 year career. It's that it's ups and ups and downs like life does, but you know, I, I feel so fortunate. Like I said, to, I've been, paying my bills by playing the drums for 25 years now. <laughs> Not many people can say that, you know? No, no, that that's, yeah. That's why I think it's, it is the definition of success. As we wrap up here, as far as being in cheap trick for as long as you have, what was something that you didn't expect either their fans performing, recording that, You've been able to kind of learn from or appreciate more 
than maybe being on the outside looking in. Now that you're in the inside, you know, as you look around, what what is something that you didn't know, you didn't appreciate as much as you do now? Um, I really think it was uh, the appreciation of the fans was was like, you know, at first I was the new guy, you know, kind of, I still am to a certain extent, but um, I really think the fact that they embraced me after I mean, it took a while. Um, that you know, the, the fact that the band has been happy with me for that for so long, thirteen, you know, 13, I hate to keep saying thirteen. That's what that's how long it is. Um, the fact that you know I'm still in the band with them, that you know, on their albums, and I mean, I must have played over at least a thousand shows with them by this point. You know, we're, we do about a hundred a year or so for 13 plus years, including a stint, you know, a few months back in 2001. So, I mean, I'm, I'm over a thousand shows with those guys, you know, and the, just being on their albums and just, I've always said that their, their work ethic is just insane. You know, they could be sick or exhausted from travel or whatever it is. They get up on stage and they put on their show. They play like they're 25 again, you know. Like they've never, I've never seen the band phone it in, if you will. It's just, so that that's, in, you know, Dick Dale too was the same way. Like these old, these older guys that like played seven nights a week in clubs, you know, like I did with Harmony Riley too, you know, not every show is going to be great, but you've got to, if it's what you love doing, just get up there and play. That's what you're lucky enough to be doing it. And I really just think, you know, that was, that's not surprising to me because I grew up around these guys, but actually being with them on stage and seeing like, and knowing like, what's going on in people's daily lives or, or, Hey, this guy's sick or man, he, he hurt his foot hurts or something, whatever it would be, you know, then they go up on stage and kick ass for 90, you know, 90 plus minutes and then get back in the van and go, Oh, I feel awful, you know, but the crowd wouldn't know it. And that, I think that's, it's show business, baby. You know, the show must go on. So I think that's just a good lesson for anybody in life. You know, no matter what you're doing, when it's time to turn it on, you got to turn it on. Now that you're the, or now that you've been the new guy, <laughs> what, what, why do you think Cheap Trick has been able to have this career for almost 50 years now? There's, I mean, one, the great songs, the great musicians, the great singer. Um, they're just weird and different enough where, like, they're not cookie cutter by any means. Like, some of the bands that are their contemporaries, I couldn't tell you who's an original member, who's a higher guy. <laughs> What's the original bass player for, I won't, I won't name a name, but you know, like I couldn't tell you, you know, there was like a, a handful of those, that same era of bands that sounded similar, looked similar, kind of faceless, nameless bands. And then, you know, I think Cheap Tricks is one of those bands. Everybody knew the four guys' names. And, uh, but I mean, like you just said, you know, we put on an album, you know, with the pandemic, it's longer now, but a, a couple of years ago, what it's probably four years now we're all all right. And it would put about three or four of that in the three or four year period. But you know, like you said, the songs are great. It's one of their best albums yet. And it's 45 years into the career, you know? So I think, you know, we switch up our set list every night, you know, I'm getting texts right now about what we're thinking about playing tonight. Um, so yeah, I think it's just that they're, they're keeping it fresh, even though they're old, you know, <laughs> not old, even though they've been around forever, they're keeping it fresh. So I think that's cool. Well, if there's, if I have any, uh, if I have any vote on the set list tonight, my vote is for Reach Out. Yeah. Everybody says that. And I, that's one of those songs I didn't even know. It was on a soundtrack somewhere, right? Yeah. The heavy metal soundtrack. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, they kind of laugh about that one, which is funny because we, we do a lot of, we've changed up our set list a lot. And that was one that people call for a lot. And they're even like, how's that one go? <laughs> oh, it's great. I think it's probably because it wasn't on one of their albums. Maybe it's, it wasn't as like, in their ingrained in their brain, maybe so much. I don't know. I can't speak for them, but I'll try. Maybe not tonight since you won't be there, but next time you come to a show, maybe, 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 maybe he's it. a whore. There you go. <laughs> That's easy enough. That's easy enough. <laughs> well, well, Dax, it's been a blast talking with you, getting to know you more and, you know, reconnecting with you. Um, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Jay, let's do it again. Absolutely, man. All right. Take Where, care. Everyone, that is Dax Nielsen. Thank you to him for appearing on The Hook Rocks. I'm Jay Scott. This has been another episode, our 500th episode. So thank you for tuning in for the last four years and 
listening to what I got to talk about and yell about or whatever I do. So take care of each other. and We will talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.